Well, good morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a joy to be back with you all. You may remember I was with you in April, just the week after Easter. And uh, though I'm, I'm, uh, I live in the Philadelphia area, I have to tell you a secret. I'm actually really falling in love with Wichita. I think this is my eighth or ninth uh, September that I've been back here. And each time I grow to love this city more and more. Um, as uh, Pastor Mike said, I have uh, had the opportunity to work with Session. I'm grateful for that. Also working with Pastor Stan. I spoke with him this week. And of course, keep uh, Stan and Nancy in your prayers as uh, they mourn, of course, uh, the passing of Nancy's father. Well, I know that this fall, you all have been in a series on listening. And several weeks ago, when Pastor Stan said, hey, you know, if you're here with friends, would you be willing to come a day early and to preach? Uh, And I said, absolutely, I'd be more than honored to do that. So I've been trying to listen, listen myself. What is it that the Lord wants me to communicate with you all. And I'm very grateful and very excited to share for the next several minutes what I sense the Lord uh, shared with me as I was listening. I hope it's a space where you all can listen with me and together we can listen to the Lord. Well, on, on Thursday in the Eastminster email communication that you may have gotten, Matt Jaderston included a link to a recent episode of one of my podcasts where I spoke about the holy island of Lindisfarne. Now, Matt had no idea that I was going to be sharing uh, the opening story on Lindisfarne here today. So if you've heard this uh, on the podcast this week with that link he sent, uh, bear with me for just a moment. But it's a a beautiful story of the holy island of Lindisfarne. It's a small tidal island just off the northeast coast of England near the border of Scotland. And it dates back to the 6th century is an important part of Celtic Christianity. There are lighthouses and stone chapels. There's a monastery. Uh, There's a beautiful castle built up on the hill in 1550. And today it's quite popular for tourists to visit. In fact, I'd love to visit one day. It's a very small island and there are only uh, about 180 full-time residents on Lindisfarne. What's interesting about Lindisfarne, what caught my attention was that it's accessible by low tide by a modern causeway road. At high tides, though, each day, the causeway is completely covered with water and inaccessible. Just wait a few hours, though, and the water goes down, the road appears again, and you can traverse. Warning signs urge visitors driving to the island to keep to the marked path, to check the, the tidal tables and the weather carefully. For the courageous and sometimes the foolish, vehicles become stuck and they need to become rescued. (laughs) As I shared on the podcast, there is also an ancient footpath that crosses the mudflats at Lindisfarne. It's called the Pilgrim's Way. At low tide, it's easy to navigate. But as the tides rise, it causes severe problems. In fact, if you begin to leave too late and you don't check the tide tables and the tides rise, what they've done on Lindisfarne is create these posts, these wooden posts that run for about a mile from the shore to the island. Should the fog set in, should the the night come quicker than you think, the tides rise, you can always look and find your way by just looking and following the way of the posts. 
If need be, you can hug those posts so you're not swept out to sea. And if it becomes even more treacherous, there are things along the path there, the pilgrim's way, called shelter boxes or, or uh, boxes of refuge it's for stranded walkers, stranded, stranded pilgrims who've left the crossing too late. You can ascend there, wait a few hours until the tides go down. And one of the parts of scripture that has anchored and grounded me over the last few years in this unique and uncertain and intense pandemic are the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms as a whole have grounded me, but the Psalms of Ascent are very special. The Psalms of Ascent are 15 Psalms of Psalm 120 to 134. In ancient times, Jewish pilgrims would go from their places around Israel and would go for a few days to Jerusalem. Imagine all of Israel descending upon Jerusalem for a few days, three times a year. Think of the energy, think of the population swell that would occur for those few days. They would go for the festivals, Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, and the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles called Sukkot in the fall. Now in Luke chapter two, it records Jesus like a good Jewish boy and a good Jewish family making the journey to Jerusalem, presumably for one of the annual festivals. Now having lived and studied in Jerusalem myself in a study abroad program when I was in college, I can tell you the energy that swells in all of Jerusalem even to this day when a festival is happening. They were quite literally traveling pilgrims on the pilgrim's way to the temple, and the Psalms of Ascent were songs for the road. And when our family goes on a a car trip, my sons, ages 15 and 12, they will excitedly shout out, Dad, put on our playlist. We've got a playlist on Spotify that we pull up that's creatively titled Briggs Boys Songs. They're about 12 to 15 worship songs that we love to hear. They're some of our favorites. We put them on, we put them on shuffle, and wherever we're going, they just love to sing along, beat on the dashboard if they're in the front seat with me, and we enjoy singing. That is our playlist. And in some ways, the Psalms of Ascent are the 15 songs on the playlist for ancient pilgrims who are making their way from all around Israel up to Jerusalem. Quite literally, the soundtrack on the journey to the temple for these festivals. Now, imagine for a moment, how might that shape you if your whole life, three times a year, you were traveling with friends and family and those from your town or your city up to Jerusalem, sometimes several days of walking. What would that be like for you if you recited those, if you memorized those, if you sang those? How would that shape you and how you understood worship along the way? Soundtracks matter. They were called the Psalms of Ascent because they were sung as people ascended to the temple in Jerusalem. Some of that was metaphorical. Going up to the Lord Most High, we ascend in our praises to the Lord, but it was also quite literal. Now, Jerusalem is literally surrounded by mountains. Now, for you Jayhawkers, that may be a little bit confusing. Let me help you out. A mountain's like a really large hill, okay? And a hill's like a pitcher's mound, okay? Just make it really big, like what those look like up there. The Mount of Olives, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. These were all in and around Jerusalem. And maybe some of you have been today and you've seen those mountains, 
In Psalm 125, verse 2, it says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds both now, it surrounds his people both now and forevermore. It's quite literal. It's a geographically accurate statement. They would be hiking up in elevation. In fact, if you were a Jew and you lived down in the, in the Jericho area, just about 10, 15, 20 miles away, it's the longest continually inhabited world, uh, city in the world. It's also the lowest point on the face of the earth in terms of a city. It's right next to the Dead Sea, the lowest point on the face of the earth. And you would ascend for these 10, 15, 20 miles up to the Temple Mount. And just before you got to the Temple Mount, you would see the Mount of Olives, one of the highest points geographically in all of Israel. In fact, in just that period of time uh, of 10, 15, 20 miles from the lowest point on the face of the earth to one of the highest points in Israel would be a 33-foot elevation gain. How they were able to hike that by foot and sing these songs at the same time is beyond me. In fact, when I was a college student, uh, we had our bikes, and when the moon was full, there's a beautiful paved, modern paved road from the Mount of Olives down to Jericho. We would get on our bikes, and we would bike the 15 to 20 miles by moonlight at midnight, and we wouldn't need to pedal once. We coasted the entire way. The ascent of Adumin is what it was called. The Psalms, and specifically the Psalms of Ascent, as they would ascend toward Jerusalem metaphorically, spiritually, and geographically. They're like posts, like refuge boxes of Lindisfarne. They exist to help us, even today as pilgrims, people on the way when those tides rise, we can use those as anchor points as pilgrims on the way. I want to turn your attention to the second of the Psalms of Ascent. I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Psalm 121. This may be familiar for some of you. Psalm 121. And as is the tradition where I come from, when Scripture's read, we stand. And so if you're physically able, would you stand with me as I read Psalm 121? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you with, from all harm and he will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you notice there, right from the beginning, that psalm starts out with a question. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Maybe the psalmist was making one of his pilgrimage treks to Jerusalem and looked upward to see at the, the surrounding mountains. Maybe he was looking at the Temple Mount, thinking about what he was about to enter into. Maybe he was just imagining it in his mind of knowing that route over and over again for his entire life. We don't know, but that thought of the hills triggers a question, and it's a question that the, answer, that the psalmist answers right away. Now, unfortunately, as I talk with Christians about Psalm 121, many Christians throughout the ages have actually misunderstood this verse. 
Some would, some think, oh, we look to the mountains because our help is found in the mountains. No, it doesn't. Clearly says that. The psalmist clearly states our help is not from the mountains, it's from the creator of those mountains, the Lord himself. And some have misinterpreted it by saying that, oh, we look at the beauty and the grandeur and the bigness of the mountains and it reminds us of God's beauty and grandeur and, and bigness. Now, just last month, my brother and dad and I were hiking in the Wasatch Mountains just outside of Salt Lake City, amazed by the creativity and the grandeur and the beauty of it all, reminding us of God. But that's not what the psalmist is intending here. How the ancient Hebrews understood mountains is really important if we're going to understand Psalm 121, because the mountains were not something that they put on Hallmark cards and sold with nice little verses inside of them. They were not of comfort and of creativity and wow, like it is for us today. In the ancient world, mountains were places of great vulnerability. Mountains caused fear in people. Why? Because ancient towns and cities were open to attack. Mount Zion, also called the city of David, surrounded by mountains. While beautiful today, it was threatening in the ancient world is why you would try to build your cities on top of hills if you could. Watchmen standing on the city walls would be looking around intently at the ridge of the mountain range to see if in the light there might be some attack army, some neighboring area pouring in over the mountains to attack our city or our fortress. That's why watchmen were set up along the wall to always be watching to make sure. And if a surprise attack and soldiers began to pour over. Armies came to attack. They would blow the horn to warn everyone. Attack is imminent. Mountains were places of great vulnerability. But in addition, in the ancient world, mountains were also places of pagan worship. In the Old Testament, these are called high places. And we see how they were detestable to the Lord. Several places in the Old Testament that were filled with these pagan practices that included sacrifices and uh, sexual activity was engaged in as a form of worship. This happened on the, the hilltops as a way of offering some sacrifice or act of worship to pagan gods that existed. So when we read this verse, I lift my eyes to the hills where I might be filled with fear of attack or I might see people engaged in pagan worship. Where does my help come from? Not from armies or protective walls, not from sacrifices made to other pagan gods. No, instead, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's a rhetorical question that provides a resolute statement of faith. You may have noticed too that Psalm 121 is in two parts. The first two verses, it's referred to with I and my in the first person. But part two of the Psalm, verses three through eight, shifts the focus. Now it's second person, you and your. Could it be that if we're singing this, that the first two verses were sung by one person in a solo? And could it be that three through eight were sung by the rest of the traveling community with you in a bit of a responsive song? We see in the second part that the psalmist lists four possibilities of harm, right? In verse three, we see that someone could lose their footing. 
slip and fall and get injured. Verse four, we see uh, a thought of a God who might fall asleep on the job. Again, the watchmen were there to faithfully make sure they would, they would never fall asleep. They're watching for attack. Verse six, we see a person could get sunstroke or heat stroke. That's a real concern in the desert even today. I remember in college hiking in the Wadi Kilt, which is a very uh, steep valley right outside of Jericho in the Judean wilderness. We were with five or six other of my friends. We were hiking and uh, we happened to look at our thermometer and it was over 90 degrees and it wasn't even nine o'clock in the morning yet. We had almost run out of water. The heat in the desert, in the wilderness, even today is extreme and this idea of heat stroke is of real danger. And then in verse six, we also see a person, they talked about uh, moonstroke. And say, what do, what do you mean, the, 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 the rays of the moon? How does that impact us? Well, there was an ancient belief that said that, that the, if you stood out under the sun or under the moon long enough, that you, it actually could impact you emotionally and mentally. It's actually where we get our word lunacy or lunatic, lunar, <laughs> moonstruck. Now, we know it's not true today, but that was a very common uh, theme uh, that was held in the minds of ancient uh, people in the ancient world. So as Eugene Peterson points out in his book, A Long Obedience, in the same direction, he said, if the ancient people of the time that this psalm was written, if they were fearful of their safety when they would travel, if they wanted to remain healthy on the road, you could draw on spells. You could say some incantations or enchantments to protect you. If you worried about the ancient God who had fallen asleep, you could shout and yell loudly to awaken that God to help you. If you worried about withering under the heat of the sun, you could make a sacrifice to the sun God. If you were fearful of being moonstruck, you could go to the moon priestess and buy a charm or an amulet and you could offer a sacrifice as well. But let's back up the truck here a little bit. Let's ask an honest question. Can we assume that Christians won't slip and fall, that they'll never get heat stroke, that they'll never struggle with mental health? It's kind of what this psalm seems to suggest, doesn't it? But we know that isn't true. I know many Christians who have slipped and fallen. I know of a a wonderful, a dear Christian woman who in her, uh, who's in her 30s, whose husband went out uh, mountain climbing, uh, took one step and fell into the arms of Jesus. Personally, I've gotten heat stroke on a trip to Rome while touring the Forum just outside the famed Colosseum on a blistering hot July day, and I certainly know many Christians. And as I work with many pastors who have suffered significantly in their mental health, So what exactly is the point that the psalmist is trying to make here? This idea of God as our protector is a key theme throughout Psalm 121. You see that right there in verse three, you see that phrase, one who guards, maybe in your Bible, maybe in your translations, one who keeps you or one who watches over you. There's a Hebrew word used there, shamar, Shamar, and it means to watch, to observe, to guard, or to preserve. That God is a God who watches, he guards, he keeps. In fact, in my Bible, I count six references to this idea of, wa- of watching. 
God watching us in just eight verses. And you'll notice that phrase in verse three, he who watches over you will not slumber. It's repeated again in verse four. He who watches over you will neither slumber nor sleep. Why the repeat? Why the emphasis on this again? In the ancient times, it was believed that the pagan gods would take these long naps. And one of the roles of a priest or a priestess or a prophet was to actually wake up these pagan gods that somehow needed their attention. You may remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 18 about the prophet Elijah. It's this epic standoff between Yahweh's prophet Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. It's a beautiful story. It's an amazing story. In fact, it's so significant, it, it, it lands Elijah in the prophet hall of fame. Elijah offered this challenge to the pagan prophets. He said, let's prepare two altars. You, you have your altar to your pagan gods and I'll have mine to Yahweh. And you call on your gods, and you see if Baal will bring fire to your altar over there. And actually, over here, we're going to pray that, that God would, uh, the God of, the Yahweh God would actually bring down fire. But you know what? We're going to soak it in water. We're going to see God's amazing hand at work here. He said, you, you call on your gods, I will call on mine, and we'll see what happens. And the pagan prophets, it says, it called out from, noon, from morning until noon. They shouted, they wailed, they danced, they pleaded for Baal to answer them, but nothing happened. And Elijah, he gets a little sassy, doesn't he? <laughs> he, he gets a little strut. He's got a little swagger. And he turns to these prophets of Baal and he says, shout louder. Surely your God's listening to you. But he says, perhaps he's in deep thought. Perhaps your God is busy or maybe traveling. And then he says this, or maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. This is how Elijah is taunting these prophets. That's why that line, he who watches over you will neither slumber nor sleep is so important. So where does our help come from? Is it Baal? Is it Asherah? Is it a sun priest or a moon prophet? Or is it from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth? One of the things I love about Psalm 121 is that it, it flat out rejects the notion of religious superstition. Now, you may be hearing that going, look, I'm not religiously superstitious. What are you talking about? Maybe not, but it's all too common for many of the Christians that I've interacted with, that they are much more religiously superstitious than they realize. It sounds oftentimes like this. If I just pray a little bit more, I'm sure God will bless me. If I fast this week, I'm sure God will, you know, make sure he pays me back for that. Or if I just read my Bible just a little bit more every morning, that wouldn't have happened to my family. But the psalm rejects this notion of religious superstition. Now, there are several common modern-day myths about God, ones that I hear as I talk with Christians, things such as, well, God doesn't care. I mean, he created us, but he doesn't really care about our everyday needs. Another myth is he cares, but he can't really do anything about it, nor does he 
really want to even if he could. Or if we do everything correctly in all the right orders and with all the right spiritual steps, that he won't let anything bad happen to me or my family or my friends or my country or my church. Another myth is this, that that God only cares about the big spiritual things in our lives. Not the little things, but he just cares about the big stuff. You know, the first line of A.W. Tozer's classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says this. He says, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about them. You ever thought about that? You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to go to seminary. Whatever your profession, whatever your field, your background, your age, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's what I love about Psalm 121. It helps correct some of our potential religious superstitions and some of our myths about who God is. It's so important for us, this psalm today, written in the ancient world, but so important to us today in a world that's constantly pulling for our allegiance and in a culture which offers up tantalizing myths about who God is and how he works. It reorients us by reminding us that despite the difficult things in the world, we can trust this God, this keeper, this watcher, this protector, Shamar. The one who made heaven and earth, including these mountains, filled with pagan idolatry and filled with vulnerability to potential attack. You and I don't live in a world of the ancient pagan gods of Baal or Asherah. We don't make sacrifices to Molech, nor do we purchase amulets to Asherah. In fact, it would be tempting to think that believing that would be utterly primitive and ridiculous but we live in a world full of idols. Arthur Brooks is a devout Catholic who teaches at the Harvard Business School, and he teaches a course there on happiness. I have to admit, when I first heard this, I was a little bit skeptical. I think, you know, is this just kind of modern pop psychology? But it's incredibly deep. In fact, it's one of the most popular courses at the Harvard Business School. It sells out, uh, or it fills up, Uh, enrollment very quickly and there's a long, long waiting list. In in that class, though, he he goes real deep with his students and he asks for a a volunteer. He says, who wants to play a game with me? And a student comes forward and he says, we're going to play the game. What's your idol? He said, the the four modern present-day idols are money, pleasure, power, and prestige. And he asked the student, of the four, money, power, pleasure, and prestige, which of it is is not your idol? He takes that away. He says, okay, of the three remaining, which of those is not your idol? Takes that away. He says, okay, of these two remaining, which one of those is not your idol? And he says, congratulations, student. Now you've identified your idol. And he said this. Until you deal with that idol appropriately, you will never be happy. You will never be content. I was on a trip recently with some friends, actually out to Salt Lake City, where we did this exercise. You talk about a humbling, vulnerable conversation with your friends to acknowledge and name your idol and how that surfaces of those four in your life. Maybe that's something you want to think through sometime today or this week. 
So our modern day idols of money and power and pleasure and prestige, they tug at our identity and they fill our minds full of fantasies about the good life and tempt us to worship at the feet of these altars every day. These are our modern day Baals and Asherahs and Molechs up on the hillsides. And it can easily lead us to live religiously superstitious lives if we're not careful. Of course, the promise of this song and to the ancient Jew and also to modern day Christians, it's not that we'll never lose our footing or get injured or have illness or struggle with mental health problems, but that nothing will be able to separate us from the purposes of God that actually are and actually exist. Nothing. The good news is that God is not some distant deity blithely looking down from a distance. Sorry, Bette Midler, that song is beautiful, but it's terrible theology. He's very personal. He's involved. He's watching over each and every one of us. And then in verse seven, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life, Shamar. It's not a demon in a loose rock on the trail that makes you roll your ankle. It's not a fierce attack from the sun god that makes you wither in the desert heat. It's not some mysterious influence of the moon goddess to drive you crazy. None of this can separate us from the call and the purpose of God in our lives, which of course reminds me of Paul's great words to the church in in Romans chapter eight. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I'm convinced, Paul said, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any power neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No issue, no problem, no setback, no hardship or pain in our lives can come between us and God. God is not up in heaven going, oh myself, what am I gonna do? He fully is aware, he is watching us. And then it ends in verse eight, the Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. The coming and going of these pilgrims three times a year in and out of the gates of Jerusalem on their pilgrimage to these festivals and then home again, but also for us in our comings and our goings throughout our days as well. You and I are pilgrims on the way. We're not traveling up to Jerusalem to the temple for a Jewish festival, nor are we trekking across the mud flats of Lindisfarne. But we're traveling in our everyday lives of working and shopping and when we're stuck in traffic and we're folding laundry and checking email and sitting in a meeting and creating a TikTok video in our journey toward Jesus. We're not tourists, as Eugene Peterson reminds. You know the difference between tourists and pilgrims, right? Tourists visit attractive places when it's convenient and leisurely, take a few pictures and head home. But instead, pilgrims, the word peripodemos means those who walk around, are people going someplace with purpose, with direction. 
You and I are pilgrims in our journey toward Jesus. And here's the good news, people of Eastminster. God is not some superstitious, sleepy, distant God who needs you to make a sacrifice so you won't roll an ankle or get heat stroke or struggle with mental health. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not wanting to play tit for tat, so you do this for me and I'll do that for you. No, he's a gracious God and he's looking for you and he's looking at you. He's paying attention to you. He's watching you attentively and lovingly. And he's also watching attentively and lovingly over this church, even this fall, even while Pastor Stan is on sabbatical. He's watching over you. He's watching over this church. Yes, there are things that need to be done in this season in our personal lives and here at the church, but we don't need to be afraid We don't need to be afraid of our feet slipping or sunstroke or moonstroke or any other problem. Jesus is at work in this church. Do we see him at work now? In the eight o'clock service, I asked that question. Do we see Jesus at work now? And there's a little boy in the front row that yelled, yes. Do we recognize the loving gaze of God on this church in this season? He's lovingly watching over you as a church. Not because you deserved it, but because you didn't. That's what make grace, makes grace so amazing. Eastminster, I challenge you, may you experience the deep love and the deep compassion of the one who watches over you, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. The posts and the refuge boxes of Lindisfarne are available to us in the Psalms of Ascent that we can go to, that when the tides are rising and the fog is thick and the sun is setting, that we can, we can hug those posts and we can ascend those refuge boxes. That's their purpose. That's what they're here for. May we be the people that utilize them because our hope is not found in the mountains, but in the Lord, the creator of those mountains who watches over us, who keeps us and nothing can separate us from his purposes, Nothing. He is not freaking out right now. I don't know about you, but when I read Psalm 121, I always feel this sense of, (sighs) that's the point. That's the purpose. God who watches over us should make us (sighs) calm. If he's not on the throne, you guys should be worried. But if he's still on the throne, and that tomb is empty, as I believe it is, and I think you do too, we can relax. We can relax. Psalm 121 serves as a reminder to us as pilgrims, not as tourists, that the way forward is marked clearly in our journey toward Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for Psalm 121. Thank you for the Psalms of Ascent, that though they were used by the pilgrims thousands of years ago, they're also available and relevant to our lives today. And we thank you that our hope is not found in the mountains. And when we get nervous looking to the mountains and we feel vulnerable or we see the temptations to serve modern day idols, modern day gods, we remember 
This is the God who created not just the mountains, but all of heaven and all of earth that can help us go, (sighs) you're in charge and we thank you. And we pray that we have listened well in these few moments together so that we can receive and live this out into our days as we are pilgrims out on the pilgrim way in the week ahead. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Amen.